Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome Dr. Bob Wachter, Chair of the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco and big influencer in these past two years on COVID. And so I think we're going to be seeing a natural experiment where certain communities respond to an uptick in cases and go back to more restricted uh, policies. Other communities don't do that and we will see what happens. Lori Robertson joins us from factcheck.org and we end with a bright idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinton. Our guest knowledge and views about COVID get noticed. In the last two years, his tweets have been seen over 400 million times by 250,000 followers and served as a trusted source of information on the clinical public health and policy issues surrounding the pandemic. We're going to ask him directly the questions about the current state of COVID. Dr. Robert Wachter is a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He also wrote The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age, which was a New York Times science bestseller. Well, Dr. Wachter, it's great to have you back as a guest again. And like you, we're tracking the latest COVID news and Philadelphia is going to again require its citizens to wear a mask indoors. Uh, it's the first major U.S. city to take this step. Just wondering from your vantage point, is this the right move? And do you think other cities will follow? Thanks for having me, uh, Mark and Margaret. It's, it's a fascinating time because there are just so many swirling currents and still a fair number of uh, unknowns despite being uh, two years into this. So if you knew for sure that the mild surge that we're beginning to see in the Northeast would lead to the kinds of surges we've seen before, then there's no question you would pull back on some of the openness, you would reinstitute mask requirements. And if you knew for sure that the mild surge that we're seeing will stay mild and not be associated with a significant increase in hospitalizations and sick people, which is what we're seeing so far over the last two or three weeks, then you probably wouldn't. Uh, the answer is we don't know either of those for sure. We do know people are pretty tired of of the restrictions and of masking, uh, et cetera, after two years. And so I think we're going to be seeing a natural experiment where certain communities respond to an uptick in cases and go back to more restricted uh, policies. Other communities don't do that, and we will see what happens. I think it feels a little premature on the part of Philadelphia. If it were me, I might have waited a little bit longer to see what happens. Uh, because if, if, if it's going to be that even a very minimal uptick in cases with no uptick in hospitalizations leads to more masking requirements, you can see a ton of masking requirements. And I think the pushback from the public is going to be pretty big. I think we kind of want the public to trust us at this point that the masks can stay off unless you want to wear one, uh, unless there really is a significant threat to the community. Mm -hmm. And I think it might be a little bit premature to make that call right now. Well, we're seeing the news coming in from multiple places now, right? We have uh, the White House COVID czar, uh, Ashish Jha, saying he's not overly concerned about the rising BA2 cases in the Northeast, but the policy lab at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia came right out and said they were against the mandate. Do you think we've learned anything about how to give messages to the public, which are sometimes not as clear and straightforward as we'd like, and get them to pay? What's your strategy when you talk to people to keep them from tuning out? I think we've learned a fair amount, and I have to say Ashish, who's a very old friend and tr trained here at UCSF, uh, is as good at this as anybody in the universe. So it will be wonderful watching him in this role as sort of communicator in chief. Uh, he's really, really good at it. If anybody can do it, he will. You know, one of the elements of COVID is that it happened in 2020 at a time where 
everyone can choose their own adventure uh, when it comes to their their media and, and their communication. So I've been gratified by having you know a quarter of a million followers, but I think they are people who have chosen to listen to me. And for whatever reason, that's a particular lane. I have a particular point of view. Uh, I'm probably sort of in the middle. There are people who are much less restrictive than I am, people who are more restrictive than, uh, than I am. And so I think the problem with communication under conditions of real uncertainty uh, with massive politicization of almost everything, even the question of you know masking, for example, on airplanes, I think that's going to be the big issue of the next week. I think reasonable people could disagree on that one. And I think it would be wonderful to have a reasoned conversation about pluses and minuses of, of mask requirements on airplanes. I'm probably going to do that on my Twitter feed later today. Uh, but much of the public is already you know, burrowed into their position. It's either a terrible thing that they have to wear a mask, in part because of a libertarian point of view or because they think COVID's over or they want it to be over, or it's a wonderful thing because it's risky and I'm sitting in this aluminum tube for six hours next to someone who I don't know. So I, my philosophy has been uh, lay out the facts in as plain English as you possibly can, sort of make clear that you see both sides of the issue, Try to be empathetic to people who disagree with you. Uh, recognize that there are some issues that I think are not controversial, and yet they are controversial. I mean, whether to get vaccinated should not be controversial. It's a no-brainer, and yet obviously some people feel differently. But on issues like reinstituting masking requirements or what to do on the airplanes, I think the, the way to approach this is have a conversation about about what we know, what we don't know, that here are both sides of the arguments and here is where I come down. So I think that's sort of the best way to approach this. But it's very, very hard. And I think we do have to weigh the fact that we're two years into this and people really are tired of it. And you can't sort of wish that away. It is, a, it is an important fact on the ground you have to pay some attention to. Mm -hmm. You know, I noticed that most recent uh, report that got published about Fox News reporters who were asked to pay to listen to CNN and sort of their responses after they seem to revert back after the study to their own uh, to their own tribe. Uh, and so you have really people who uh, are following those people that they've somehow gotten comfortable with. And really, all of these get down to the trust that we're trying to build up. And you were talking about airplanes and the decision that's coming up by the Department of Transportation, I think, April 18th. But tell us what you do from San Francisco to visit uh, Ashish Jha in uh, Providence. What would you wear when you're on the airplane? Yeah, I, I, I would do nothing different than I've been doing a year and a half since I've started doing some traveling. And I've made three cross-country airplane trips in the last five weeks. Uh, I wear an N95 or a KN95. Uh, I put it on as I'm entering the airport. I try very hard not to take it off until I leave the airport on the other, other end. You know, we know that airplanes are quite safe in terms of the airflow, the ventilation. And that we sort of have, it, it has the kind of airflow we'd love to have in school rooms and in our offices. Uh, so that part is, is terrific. On the other hand, airplanes morph into flying restaurants at some point during the flight. And at that point, you have people taking their masks off. And maybe in a week or two or three, more people will take their masks off. I think one of the things we've learned is the value of one-way masking. I mean, the early mantra that my mask protects you but doesn't protect me is wrong. If you're wearing an N95, your mask is protecting you really, really well. I mean, I know that because we take care of people with COVID in the hospital, mm -hmm. and we very rarely get COVID from our patients. And so my feeling is if I keep that N95 on for the, for the vast majority of the flight, 
and take it off very briefly, and I do, I take it off very briefly to gobble down some food and, and chug my cranberry juice and put it right back on. And I try to do that when, if I look around me, when everybody else has their masks on. I think that's a pretty safe thing to do. The, the flight is not super high on the list of things that worry me. I'm much more worried about going to a reception at a conference I went to the other day in Tennessee where there you know, were a few hundred people there and we were eating and drinking and in a room that was probably less well ventilated than an airplane. So even if the feds make the decision to take away the mask mandate, I think that will actually increase, <laughs> I'm, I'm even more likely to keep my mask on the entire flight. And I think if I do, it will keep me safe. And that is why I think ultimately, if the case rates don't skyrocket, I think the government probably will take down the mask mandate, whether they do it next week or they wait a few more weeks to see what happens with this BA2 surge, I'm not sure. But I think they probably will take it down in part because we now know that individuals, someone who's had three, or in my case, four shots and is wearing an N95 for the entire flight, I've done everything I can to keep me safe, even if the person sitting next to me is unvaccinated and is not wearing a mask. But another decision point uh, that's out there, you said you got a fourth, uh, fourth dose of the vaccine pretty recently, but Americans over 50 can now get their second booster if it's been at least four months since their first one. What's your advice to people about getting it now or waiting until later off of some of the concerns about declining immunity? Dr. Fauci says we are likely to see another surge in the fall. Would you advise uh, patients to wait and to get it a little closer to the fall, or what's your advice? Yeah, I think it's a tough call. I, 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 I got it. So I'm a 64-year-old, pretty healthy person. I've got mild asthma, but, but, but you know, I'd probably fall on the medium to high-ish risk just because of my age. And I felt like um, the, the data from Israel is quite convincing that the second booster or the fourth dose uh, significantly lowers the chance of getting infected and the significantly lowers the chance of getting severely infected, by which I mean going to the hospital and getting very sick and dying. And that was enough for me now six or seven months after my first booster to feel like I'd like to get it now. I sort of felt like, you know, waiting until you hear that there's more of an upsurge in your region, sort of like trying to time the stock market. It just doesn't generally work very well. You're better off buying a good stock and, and holding. And so the idea of, you know, of, of sort of waiting and timing, that part wasn't very attractive to me because I sort of figured if I get it now and this one also lasts six months, then I'll probably get another one, you know, when the time comes. If, if, if you need another one in the fall or they've come out with a better vaccine in the fall, not clear yet that that's going to be true. I didn't think there was real value in waiting. I changed my thinking a little bit on that with the study in the New England Journal last week that showed that the, the length of protection from booster number two was going to be similar to that of booster number one, meaning that it lasted four to six months and then it started decaying. What was a little surprising was that it only lasted about two months in terms of protection against symptomatic infection. And so if that's the window you have, it's only going to work now, not probably last longer than that in terms of protection against severe infection. So that's comforting. But if the window is only, be, only going to be a couple of months, and it seems unlikely that you're going to get another booster two months from now, then it felt like you know, if I'm a younger, healthier person, if I'm six months out from shot number, uh, booster number one, then I think I'd probably wait. Because my risk of getting very sick and dying if I've had three shots and I'm, a, I'm, I'm younger, your risk of having a severe infection is very low. The n amount of COVID in the environment now, even though it's, there's been a little bit of an uptick, is still fairly low. I think it probably makes better sense to sort of use your two-month window better 
maybe in the summer if you're going to be in the south, maybe waiting till the, 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 the fall if you're going to, uh, to be in the north. But it's a lot of guesswork. In my thinking about all of this, I have to say there's a part of it that's all about severe infection. Am I going to get sick and die? There's a part of it that is about long COVID, which is I still really don't want to get COVID if I can avoid it. The data that's come out about long COVID in the last six weeks is pretty scary. Mm -hmm. I, you know, two months ago, three months ago, we thought about long COVID as symptomatic badness, that you still felt crummy six months later, brain fog or fatigue or whatever. There have been four studies in the last month or so that showed increased risk of blood clots, increased risk of heart attacks, increased risk of diabetes, uh, you know, a couple others, uh, brain shrinkage. We don't really know what that means. So but that's part of the tension here is what are you trying to do? Prevent symptomatic infection, serious infection. So that's a long and complex answer, but it's really, a, you know, this is like in fourth grade when they taught you about multiplying fractions with fractions. This is it on steroids. It's really pretty tricky to think this through. But I think the, the really short duration of protection from, from shot number two does push me for a young, healthier person to wait a little bit until there's more unmistakable signs of a surge. You know, uh, we're seeing uh, in Washington, lots of our leaders uh, reporting that they've tested positive for COVID uh, in recent days. And I think back in 2020, then President Trump had COVID. And at that time, you said you were in favor of Trump being assessed for alterations in his judgment. To be fair, we, we need to ask you, do you think such an assessment should be required of uh, those? And, and they're pretty high up in terms of the leadership should also be tested for any issues. And, and I, I say that in particular, given all the reports that you just indicated about long COVID and its potential impact on so many parts of the uh, body systems. No, I don't think so. I think the president has a special place. I mean, we have we don't have a 25th Amendment for, you know, a member of Congress or for a senator. And, you know, for every person, there's always a risk of cognitive decline. And we don't go around and test people for for dementia, whether they're a congressperson or a physician, for that matter. I don't think the risk is so high. I think in, in, in President Trump's case, there were a few issues that were going. First of all, we, it was quite clear he had a severe case even though they fabricated uh, and, and dissembled about it. It was quite clear that he had a low oxygen level, that he was actually a substantial risk of a bad outcome. It was in the first wave of COVID where we didn't have the kind of treatments that we, we have now. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and there is a 25th Amendment for a reason. He, you know, the president controls the nuclear button. So I think it's a very, very special case. You know, the, the, the virus that people are getting now, particularly if they're getting a breakthrough infection, which I assume all of these Congress people have uh, been fully vaccinated, um, that, you know, Omicron is milder than the virus that Trump got. There was no vaccine when Trump got his infection. These folks are now getting breakthrough infections, which makes it even milder than it was before. So we don't really know what the risk of long COVID is in the, set, in the setting of these folks. We know sort of the risk of long COVID for people that got infected a year ago, but there's no such thing as someone who got a breakthrough Omicron infection a year ago. There were barely vaccines to just come out and uh, and there was no Omicron. So my guess is that Omicron has proven itself to be milder, that breakthrough infections tend to be milder, that the risk of long COVID, both in terms of symptoms and cognitive issues and ultimate risk factor for things like heart attacks and blood clots mm -hmm. will be lower for the person who gets a breakthrough infection with Omicron than from the prior infections. And so we've got to be a little bit reluctant to 
to you know extrapolate with a straight line saying here's what we know a year later after an infection uh, i think the setting is somewhat different now i hope so you know the idea that you know the almost half of the country that got omicron most of them breakthrough infections that they will all be at a significant higher risk for things like diabetes and heart attacks i mean that's a uh, that's really troubling if that turns out to be the case. I, I think it's too soon to make the call, but in my mind, it is one reason that I don't want to get infected if I can avoid it. I'm yeah. not of the school that we should all be over it, and if we get it, it's going to be mild, and so don't worry about it. I still think it's, it's a worthwhile pursuit if you can live your life to the extent that you can and, and, and have joy in your life, and to me, that means traveling periodically, but not put yourself under undue risk uh, because there is some possibility that this long COVID thing will still be a thing, even if it's a relatively mild initial infection with Omicron in someone who's already been vaccinated. Well, Dr. Wachter, I'd, I'd like to ask you about some of the long-term uh, changes associated with COVID, not some of the behavior changes that we're going to see in healthcare. Uh, it's been more than two years since I've seen the faces of some of the folks in our primary care teams and our uh, primary care clinics, and I imagine that's probably true. At UCSF, we're still under an emergency order uh, here in Connecticut by the governor for healthcare facilities to all be masked. Do you think it's possible that this will just become a normal part of being in a healthcare setting, that people will wear masks? Is there a going back even post-COVID? What's your thought on that? What are we likely to see? I'm guessing that we will stick with masking in healthcare delivery settings, certainly I think in hospitals, but this may be regional. I mean, I, you know, I think in San Francisco, which has been a very masky place and a very, uh, I think that I'm guessing that I will always be required to wear a mask when I have patient contact, at least for the next several years. Who knows what things will feel like 10 years from now. I think there'll probably be other parts of the country where the masks become sort of so non-normative that in all settings that they go back to non-masking except for having a lower threshold to wearing a mask when the provider has a sniffle or the patient has some respiratory illness. I think we'll, you know, we'll have to see. I have to say it's been, in my workplace, we have, we, you continue to have to wear a mask with patient care, but if I'm having a meeting with a colleague in my office, we don't have to, and that's been wonderful. I think we're all kind of learning our way back around social graces. My, mm -hmm. my younger son, who is uh, autistic, said to me a few months ago when he w went out to see a concert and met a friend, and he came back and he had a huge smile on his face. And I said, Benji, what, what's up? And he, he said, it's great, Dad. Nobody knows how to socialize anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was sort of a great equalizer for there people a, that are kind of neuroatypical. <laughs> and so I think we're all kind of learning a lot of stuff. You know, I mean, I can't figure out the handshake versus the elbow bump. You know, every time it feels like it needs to be negotiated. So I think we're all going to have to sort of be charitable with ourselves and get used to this new normal and figure it out. But I, you know, I think for at least the next couple of years in healthcare settings, we will wear masks and we probably should. You know, you've written so well about the digital revolution in medicine and COVID is really its first big test. But the Harvard Business Review recently wrote that digital and artificial intelligence really failed in so many ways. Bad data sets, complex, uh, uneven uh, global context. Uh, where do we go from here in terms of digital technology? You know, my worldview is that we are heading toward a universe where healthcare is as digitally facilitated as the other parts of your life, as, you know, the way you handle your finances and your travel, which now are almost completely digital and work better than they used to when they weren't. And so healthcare is not that, in part because we were very late to this game, and in part because it's complicated. There's a lot of reasons. It's mm -hmm. the regulations, the 
HIPAA, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's just harder. I think COVID accelerated us in a few ways. I think telemedicine's facilitation was really important, although sadly I see a lot of states putting back some of the regulatory barriers that will push back on it. But I think now that clinicians and health systems and patients have tasted it, there will be a real demand. And it, 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 what's great about telemedicine is not just a visit replacement, but it sort of changes the geography of healthcare. The idea that all healthcare is delivered when you go to a doctor's office or go to an ER has been blown up by telemedicine. I think we'll continue to get blown up by all sorts of digital health that people can do at home. So I think that moved us probably five years ahead. I think another thing that's less sexy, but I think has been very cool, is the use of digital dashboards. You know, I go onto my UCSF website every morning and I can see the data I need to know about COVID, patients mm -hmm. and test positivity rate and, and, and you know, people in the hospital, whether they were vaccinated or not, and whether they have, and it's beautiful, it's beautifully visualized, it's well laid out. And I think once you've tasted that, you say, why, why don't I have that for all my patients with diabetes and my patients with cancer? And up until recently, we measured everything, but then, you know, when, when a clinician needed data or a healthcare leader needed data, you sent them a spreadsheet. It was stupid. So I think, I think this has moved us forward in the understanding that collecting the data uh, digitally doesn't do anything until you then can process it and deliver it to decision makers in a form that's really usable. I'd say AI, I thought might have its shining moment during COVID, I don't think did. I think it's going to be a really important technology and advance, but it's, it's harder than people think. It's harder than the people who've done AI in other industries who think that they can come into healthcare and, and, and fix us, um, in part because the data sources are so bad, the, the bias, all the, the usual reasons that problems with data sharing. I think it will have its moment eventually, but it did not hit its tipping point now. But I think overall, COVID moved forward the digitization of healthcare by, you know, by five years. I think we'll hit some of the digital nirvana in 2025 rather than in what might have been 2030 or 2035. Okay, I'm looking forward to digital nirvana <laughs> in 2025. But, you know, uh, Dr. Wachter, you've been a great communicator uh, throughout COVID, and you mentioned your, your followers. I think you said 200,000? 260,000. 260,000 Not all of them are, not all of them are family members. So it's, it's, been, <laughs> it's been pretty gratifying. <laughs> well, that, that is uh, impressive. And, but there's also issues uh, with Twitter. We read that the New York Times just said its reporters do not need to be on Twitter because so many of them have become targets for harassment. Uh, do you think Twitter is nearing a point not of nirvana, uh, but a point of where it's just more trouble than it's worth for public health education? Yeah, I'm I'm a fan. I, I, I it, certainly it can be a cesspool. Certainly it can be a source of disinformation, and 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 I have seen lots of abuse. I've received some, but I think mine has been reasonably benign. And I have to say it's partly because I'm a white guy. I, I my colleagues who are not, I think, get more abuse, which is quite really quite terrible. Um, for me, the ability to go on uh, to Twitter and see what 100 or 150 people I really respect who are looking at COVID, world-class virologists or epidemiologists or aerosol scientists or sociologists, what they're thinking, what they're reading, to be able to sort of see the latest literature as synthesized, for example, by Eric Topol. And then for me then to take it all in and say, all right, here's what I'm thinking about the airplanes and be able to communicate it with forced brevity in a way that immediately goes to you know a quarter of a million people, I think it's pretty fabulous. And, and if, if your goal was to keep up to date on this thing 
and communicate out to people who, want, who are looking for information from a trusted source, I think it's irreplaceable. Free speech is free speech. There's no filter. And so there's just a huge amount of garbage out there. It's also a massive time sink. The, 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 the uh, New Yorker writer and comic writer Andy Borowitz several years ago wrote on Twitter, it was, I thought quite funny, he said, I'm signing off Twitter for a while, my family has left me and I need to find out when. <laughs> think well, about the great. funniest thing you can say in that few characters. Well, but overall, I think to, for me it's been a godsend. And I think for the people that follow me and people like me, it has uh, provided a source of trusted information that's really up to date that I think can't be replicated by any other form of media. So, Well, let's try to pull on some of that knowledge that's up to date because we're hearing about a BA3 and a BA4 variant that people are keeping an eye on. Tell us what you're seeing out there, what keeps you up at night about this, uh, and do we have a good early warning system uh, in place here in the United States? Yeah, I, we're better prepared than we were, you know, a, a year or two ago. We're watching it very carefully. I think it's a little bit embarrassing that the data systems that we have in the United States are so poor and, and so poorly developed, and we do have to rely so much on the data from other countries, particularly Britain and, and, and Israel, but many of the European countries. Mm -hmm. I think it's a wake-up call for us. We need better data systems, better monitoring. I think wastewater is an advance. We need better surveillance. I don't love the idea that we're going to use hospitalizations as our metric, because that's two weeks, three weeks behind. And you know, for me to decide whether I want to wear a mask or go out to an indoor restaurant, I'm not really looking at hospitalizations. I'm trying to figure out what are the chances that my waiter is infected or, or that somebody at the next table is infected. And I don't get that from hospitalization. I need to know what the prevalence is in the community. So the problem is there are variants that pop up all the time. And so it is going to take some time and work to suss out each one and whether this is a scariant, as they say, or a really truly worrisome variant. I think the, you know, the key thing is we're watching now, we're monitoring, we're looking at genetics to be able to say, oh, we're seeing an uptick here that we wouldn't have expected. Um, you know, am I worried? Yeah. Anybody who said there can't be anything more infectious than Delta was proven wrong with Omicron. And anybody who said, all right, now Omicron's as bad as it get was proven wrong with BA2. The thing that worries the most, you know, I am over it has become a governing philosophy. And so I am not convinced that we will do what we need to do if we see a particularly nasty new bug come out, you know, the, the, what we would have done a year ago. And I think what we'd still do in a place like San Francisco is, okay, this one's nasty again. We're going back to masking. We're going back to being more careful. There are lots of parts of the country where that will simply not be true. And then we'll have to see whether they get away with it or not. I think there's a decent chance that they won't. Well, thank you, Dr. Wachter, for your advice, your guidance, and your incredible contributions to health and healthcare over decades. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare at chcradio.com. Dr. Wachter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a yeah. delight. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Weekly rates of COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths by vaccination status are published monthly by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on its website. 
the death data were last posted on March 17 and the hospitalization data on March 31st. But a viral tweet claimed the CDC is no longer releasing the information. The tweet was later deleted by its author, but as we've seen before, when something goes viral, it is still being shared by other people on other platforms. The CDC monitors rates of COVID-19 cases and deaths by vaccination status and age group. According to the CDC website, COVID-19 case and death information is collected from jurisdictions that can link their case surveillance data to immunization data and identify the vaccination status of people who test positive. The data on COVID-19 hospitalizations are collected by COVID-NET, a surveillance system that collects data on hospitalizations of children and adults with a confirmed infection through a network of over 250 hospitals in 14 states. According to this data, unvaccinated people over five years old were 2.4 times more likely to test positive for COVID-19 and nine times more likely to die from COVID-19 in January. And in February, unvaccinated adults ages 18 and older were five times more likely to have a COVID-19 associated hospitalization than fully vaccinated adults. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Stanford-based bioengineer Manu Prakash has a simple goal. He wants to create a portable medical lab small enough to fit in a backpack, and he's already developed a tool that fits the bill. While sitting under a tree in Uganda, he noticed that the local medical clinic's door was propped open by an expensive centrifuge machine, one that was reliant on electricity, now broken and no longer in use. And he wondered, how could he create a portable centrifuge that would be inexpensive to make, easy to operate, and easy to replace? His inspiration came from a simple childhood toy, the Whirly Gig, a toy that functions by pulling two ends of a string threaded through a round object like a button. So we spent a significant portion of this time truly understanding the mathematical phase space for how you can convert linear motion into rotational motion. And there's some beautiful mathematics hidden inside this object. So he took this simple toy idea to another level, creating a human-powered centrifuge made from simple components, paper, twine, and plastic. Altogether, each paperfuge, as he calls it, can be constructed in under two minutes and costs only 20 cents. And yet, remarkably, it works extremely efficiently. With this set of principles, we're able to essentially make a centrifuge that spins all the way to 120,000 RPM. In the lab, we can separate and pull out malaria parasites from blood, separate blood plasma. It's currently being tested for malaria diagnoses, but is being readied for far more complex diagnostic challenges. This is a tool that requires no electricity, no infrastructure. You can carry them around in your pockets for a price point of 20 cents. The Paperfuge, a cheap but highly effective field tool for clinicians, providing a portable solution to diagnostic challenges, creating a quicker pathway to diagnosis and treatment. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University. 
streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.